Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello and welcome to Waterstones in Bradford, housed in the fabulous Wool Exchange building. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm an author, ghostwriter, reviewer, editor and podcaster. And today I'm interviewing RJ Barker. Hello. (laughs) Who many of our listeners know. And uh, Mika Yongo. Hello. (laughs) Good evening, guys. So why don't you start, um, restart, by telling us a little bit about yourselves and also about your books, but not too many spoilers, please. Um, I'm RJ Barker, the author of the Wounded Kingdom trilogy. The the author of the... um, multi-award nominated Wounded Kingdom which are Age of Assassins King of Assassins and Blood of Assassins but not in that order (laughs) but that is the books yeah Uh, my name is Micah Yongo I'm from Manchester and I'm the author of The Lost Gods it will be a trilogy eventually but at the moment there's only one of the books out and um, saying a little bit about the novel itself is it? if you like but no spoilers okay it's a it's a um, epic fantasy thriller about assassins, about adolescent assassins set in a kind of Middle Eastern African world. Fantastic. And RJ, your book is about adolescent assassins? It is about, well, to start off with, <laughs> Just it, it's, it's the, the life of one assassin um, and three key points in his life that affect the history of the world he's in. Excellent. Between the ages of 15 and 35. Okay, so let's start with a a very general question. Um, How did you come up with the ideas for Lost Gods and Age of Assassins? Did you imagine the plot? Were you inspired by a particular place? Or did a character just walk fully formed into your head? I think for me, I was inspired by a place. So um, when I was about seven years old, my family's originally from Nigeria. And when I was about seven, I remember travelling back there as a kid and just sort of being really kind of wowed by the whole experience of it and it just being... I don't know, just this kind of assault of like different senses and colours and all that kind of thing. And um, I wanted to create a story that was in that kind of world and that would be able to explore that kind of space and context. And so um, when I started writing, I wasn't originally thinking of writing something that was necessarily fantasy, but it kind of felt like it was the right tone or vibe to it, I guess, in a way. And so, yeah, it ended up being, being Lost Gods. And that's kind of where it came from. It came from my childhood experiences of, of visiting my homeland, basically. Are there, are there lots of people being late in it? A few people, maybe. Because yeah. when we were at Comic Con, <laughs> Meek was getting very angry with Nigerian time. <laughs> saying that Nigeria... it's, a, it's a thing. Yeah. yeah. We have a different relationship to time, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some Nigerians do, anyway. Yeah. Not you. Not me, no. <laughs> you, you were on time today. Yeah. yeah. I thought like I was pretty punctual. Yeah, pretty Most punctual. of the time, anyway, I think. Yeah. Yeah. About 20 minutes late. <laughs> That's pretty punctual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I had um, I, I was meant to be writing a science fiction novel, and um, I, I love the North Yorkshire Moors, and I had this sort of image of it in my head, and the the name, the Tired Lands, came into my head, and I thought, oh, that's evocative, mm. and and then I, I put it to one side because I wasn't meant to be writing that, and then this whole the whole story for Age of Assassins kind of barreled into my mind, fully formed huh. with all the people and I thought oh, I'll write this down and I did, in, a, in an incredibly quick amount of time, I wrote it in six weeks Wow, 
What, all the trilogy? Or just no, the first book? No, just the first book. First book. <laughs> first book. Six weeks. Steroids were involved. but Because um, <laughs> I was poorly, not, 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 I, wasn't, I wasn't pumping iron or anything. Um, but yeah, six weeks, not much sleep. But not much housework, or did that all go to your lovely wife? What work? <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, okay, having read both books, I'm going to try and structure my questions around similarities and the differences I encountered with each of them. So first and foremost in my mind, and particularly relevant to your book, Micah, is the subject of religion. So in Micah's book, uh, when Nathan first encounters a watcher, it's a world-shattering moment. But RJ, when Zuss starts walking with Gurton, he just takes it all in his stride. So do you want to explain how your characters came to have such different approaches to divinity? Hmm. That, that's not a small question, is it's it? It's not, is it? Yeah. Well, it's quite RJ, a deep one. if you had read the questions in the third Yeah, but no, because then I'd have made up something that sounded clever, and this, this way you actually get me, um, which is something ridiculous. Um, and clever, but yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah. that's why I like appearing. <laughs> Mika. Um, I, I kind of I wanted this idea that maybe, maybe in these books, the, the god of death, who is us, who is the only living god in their world, in their theology, maybe he only exists inside Girton's head. Um, and, and it's never said in the books you, you can take it how you want it and whether, whether it's real or not but um, I don't think there is ever a moment in the book where where the, the god has an effect on the world that could not actually be Gurdon um, so what about the birds? Not, uh, again the, the, <laughs> there's no reason that couldn't be him Okay. given we learn about him. Mm. Um, although, personally, I kind of like the idea that it isn't. I like that's one of my favourite sequences. Um, mm. But yeah, and I like that idea that kind of that's why Gurton doesn't think anything of it because partly because he, he's been he's been raised with this. This is he's been raised an assassin and, and a murderer, and, and mm. that to him is just every day. This is well, of course that's real. Um, mm. But also, he's kind of. Somewhere maybe in the back of his mind, he he knows that that's not not real. It's part of him, mm. and, that, and it's it's a reasoning going on in the back of his head. I like that idea. Huh. It's funny actually when you say. I mean, mine was very much kind of the reverse approach with it. It was what in the what I really like the idea of 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 religion being a thing which was sort of like antiquated and backwards mm. in that world, and it being something that people um, had already made a decision on. And that um, I like the idea of the na- of the main character having to sort of question things that had been taught and things that had been told as well growing up and stuff, and I want it to be this kind of coming of age thing. And so, um, yeah, in a lot of ways, that whole the whole I don't know the whole spiritual dynamic of it was very much about um, Nathan being introduced to certain elements or truths about the world that he thought weren't true, but that turned out to be true, sort of thing. So, um, I liked the idea of him having to question. Um, his traditions and having to question his brotherhood and all that kind of stuff basically Mm. fantastic okay so I mean we've talked about the characters and their reactions but what about the religious pantheon and the magical systems how did you go about kind of putting that in the background because I know from writing my own novels you can write a whole pantheon and maybe 
they'll turn up a couple of times but it's important mm. to have that in the background mm. so what about you because I mean all of yours RJ are kind of dead yeah, and dead. I think the clue is in the title of yours <laughs> my story <laughs> <still be> lost <laughs> yeah. so you know did you, did you even bother writing you know all the, the rules of all the gods and all their names and all the histories or did you just kind of add them in when you need to Charlotte's looking at me like, like she doesn't know how I write. No, I didn't do anything like that. I just made it all up as I go along. Um, there is a kind of idea behind the three books that is very low level, but it was one of the central ideas when I wrote it. That this, um, a lot of my friends are historians, and I'm fascinated by history. Mm-hmm. And one of them was telling me that, that there is a theory that as, as humans move from um, hunter-gatherer societies to more agrarian societies where they're in cities um, they move from matriarchal to patriarchal gods right. um, and I liked that idea and like a lot of, of ideas from historians for everyone you'll meet who will tell you that's the case you'll meet another one that'll tell you it definitely isn't um, but that, I'm just protecting my historian friends there so in case <laughs> one of them gets called on it they can say don't want me um, but I liked that idea and that's kind of the idea with the gods is that their gods were were actually matriarchal gods and that is being put to one side and there is a kind of as as you read through the three books there is less female characters in positions of power as you go through them because this is a society in mm. in transition yeah. and, and and there's a there's, there's a big metaphor which Mika hasn't read the book so he doesn't know but you do know that metaphor that's got, that runs through I love true. using the word metaphor. You sound like so much like a writer. It's a pretty cool word. Isn't it, it is, it? isn't it? Yeah. You're doing any good metaphors. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of them now. But, yeah. um, I think for me, what was the question again? Marjorie <laughs> <laughs> well, does tend to go off on the panel. So, how do you go about creating your pantheons oh, and your gosh. magical system, or do you? Yeah, so like with well, I didn't initially like for me. It was very much about the main character and just tr- like trying to tell his story. But as I was kind of going through the novel, I was kind of felt like sort of discovering or exploring more things about the wider context of the world and including theology and stuff so yeah I started creating um, this pantheon of gods that don't appear in the first novel but they will appear in the second novel uh-huh. um, and there's, there's little hints to them in the first novel mm. um, but they kind of get those threads get tugged a little bit more in the second book um, I, I'm not sure what I based it on I don't think I really based it on anything specific I mean well I based certain elements of it on and some of the things that I've grown up with, you know, from like West African folklore, but not in a specific way, not like sort of like a like for like substitution mm. of, you know, God from there or whatever. Um, so, yeah, there is a pantheon in there and I did sort of think about it, but not that deeply. So, because your gods seem to influence the characters quite a bit and mm. they kind of come in and, you know, draw, like you had to say, help them find the truth in it, whereas RJ is kind of a bit more standoffish. So RJ can sit yeah. this question out. <laughs> 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 but how do you how do you go about the fact that, you know, whenever they're in a ch- sticky situation or they need to find something out, why doesn't a god just pop up and tell them? Did you oh, Were you ever tempted to do that? Did you write a first draft and, like, go, oh, no, like the god's telling him everything out? So, like, when I started thinking about creating the Pantheon, I... Again, and this is stuff which will show up more in the second book. I started thinking about having certain rules or laws that would exist between the mm. divinity and between humanity, so that I could kind of hamstring myself from being tempted to do that, basically. Mm. And um, the characters still having to have their own agency to discover what they need to discover, but being sort of like led along a little bit um, by the gods to involve themselves in the narrative. So, yeah. I, it, it was it was a conscious decision what you actually said there in terms mm. of like not wanting to just there to just be this mulligan where you know the god kind of shows up and they can get out of whatever situation mm. um, 
but still wanting that to be I still wanted the gods to be involved in the story as well at the same time there's not a lot of magic in your stories no. I don't think that's a spoiler to give it away whereas in RJ's there's a, they have a little bit of magic they kind of manipulate but it's so subtle isn't it that you almost don't know it's there yeah with the, with the form of their dance moves and um, the voice that flies to the ear and things yeah. like that yeah the, there is there's a bit of, but you don't it's very really, realistic magic yeah I'm really wary <laughs> about magic because it is it's a get out of jail free card yeah exactly and the more it's a get out of jail free card the more boring your book is so mm. you, you have to you have to engineer for me not for everybody um, magic that isn't too powerful or that they cannot just sort of if they're stuck just go I'm going to magic my way out of this there has to be consequences mm. well, exactly and in yours yeah. it's being killed by everybody else really, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> in deeply unpleasant ways yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 even not... your best friends by the, yeah. uh, by the staff yeah. Yeah. I mean um, Mike did you not want to introduce magic as part of you know all lumped in with the gods and everything no, I wanted, coming it, out later it kind of comes out later again so like uh, I did want it to be subtle. I did want it to be um, something that was part of the world, but not in a not in an explicit, clear way. I wanted it to be something where, again, that there would be a, a cost, a consequence to it yeah. when it actually does show up. Otherwise, it's just I wanted it to be something that actually feels special within the context of the story, rather mm. than it just being this normal feature that's already happening in the world. Um, so I, I very much wanted it to be that the main characters, when they they encounter magic or they encounter something that's supernatural in some kind of way, that it actually feels like that to the main character as well as just to the reader. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah, fantastic. Okay, well let's bring it back down to sort of a more human level. And um, combat forms a large part of both your books, given they've all got assassins in them. So um, Gertin is assassin, and Nathan is sort of part of the Brotherhood in a much wider sense. Um, so, what are your tips for writing fight scenes? And in particular, do you have a different approach when writing very intense hand-to-hand combat scenes compared to, say, huge sprawling battle scenes? I, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Let's see, I wasn't talk too much. <laughs> um, I, I think what interests me in a, in a battle scene is not as blow for blow description which is to me quite mm. dull what I'm interested in is what I'm interested in in any scene it's in the effect of the people so mm. with Girton you, you have the the fact that in a one on one fight he's incredibly confident and incredibly capable and probably unbeatable one on one unless you're, you're an assassin because he is trained to do that that's all mm. he's trained to do um, so you have that sort of um, confidence and the, the way the, the fights are set up with he, he sort of names the moves and then you go through the moves they're, they're meant to sort of make it appear quite effortless like mm. like he's it's muscle memory mm-hmm. he's not actively thinking about it he's going mm-hmm. through this, this series of moves that, that are built up and they're there but when you get him in especially in the second book when you get him in very large scale fights where there are armies mm. and that there's particularly there's a cavalry charge in it and that is not his thing he's not trained for that he doesn't really understand it uh, and he's pant-wettingly terrified <laughs> uh, and that, that's the the emotion that I want to get across and even one-on-one I want to, want to the, in the first book that you only really see him totally in effect once there's a scene in a forest where, where he takes down four or five men um, like that but he's been pretending to be someone else mm. And he kind of slips back into the person he is, this this killer, and he scares himself mm. because he's he, he's never thought about what he is before, and suddenly he's sort of recontrol. And that's that's what interests me about violence, not not making it cool. Mm. Don't want it to be cool. I, I want it to be really quite unpleasant mm. and frightening. And, and that that's kind of what I'm trying to get across, rather than 
Yay, stabbing! Yeah, that's so cool. Look at me kill these guys. Yeah, I don't, I don't want that. Mm. Well, we certainly get that in your book, don't we, Mike? Because I'm reading the battles. Well, they're not so much battles; it's hand-to-hand combat, and it's it's not pleasant and it's not nice, and and they get realistic wounds and yeah. broken teeth and things, and it's not yeah. Oh, broken teeth! <laughs> oh. Everybody loves a bit of broken teeth. No. Oh. He's so squeamish. Like he was telling me before that he actually gets quite squeamish about yeah. reading gore in, in books, which I find it so hard to believe, yeah. like reading yeah. what you write. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I wanted the action to be something that was, I wanted it to be like clear and vivid, but mm. I didn't, I wasn't, similar to you, I wasn't like overly enamored about trying to kind of explain everything that's going on blow for blow in the fight scene. So it's the very kind of abbreviated or quick because for me, the characters are actually doing the fight and they've been training to do that their entire lives and it shouldn't be something that feels like it's, there's a certain degree of pathos with it in terms of like they, in terms of like with Nathan trying to figure out that he's just killed somebody without thinking about it or having any kind of emotional connection to it. Mm. And there's a certain degree of him trying to figure out whether he should feel guilty about that or whatever else and stuff. But in terms of the actual fight sequences themselves, they're very cold and clinical and just sort mm. of like and quick as well a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and I kind of it kind of felt like that's how it should be for these guys who are who've been training to do this since they were they were kids. Mm. Yeah. So, um, RJ, you write from a single point of view, uh, whereas Mikey, you've chosen to write from multiple point of views. So, I wanted to ask you sort of why you chose that, and whether you find it easier writing from multiple viewpoints, making sure you get all the relevant bits in, or whether for RJ, I know we've been talking about sort of mystery, whether it's easier to get suspense and guessing games going when you only write from one viewpoint because some things are naturally hidden. So, obviously, you've got to decide: are you going to show everything, or are you just going to limit it down? I know it's a big decision when I start writing a novel: which is it going to be? So what kind of made you decide to, to do that? I, I like one point of view. I'm doing something completely different now, and it, it's very close to third person, but it is still one point of view. It, mm. It's still follow. I'm not really tempted to go off. Because I like, I like to cheat, basically. <laughs> I, I, li- I like to be able to show you sort of... Like in the first Assassin's book, um, close your ears, Miko, if you've not read the books, you see Prince Adol. And um, every so often a review will come up and they'll say he, he's a really two-dimensional moustache-twirling villain. <laughs> and, and it's absolutely legit. It's, it, that is how you're meant to see him in that book because Girton's a 15-year-old boy uh, and that's how he sees him. And, and then in the other books you meet him again and, and you see that's not who he was. And, and, and in the final book I oh. kind of talk about why he is the way he is and I knew that when I was writing him. Um, and I think if you go back and read your... Yours, You'll see that, but I like that fact with the very close first you can you can cheat the reader and not give them what and then later on you get that payoff. It might be two books down the line, but you will get it. See I didn't see that as cheating. I saw Ador as genuinely being the mustache twirling villain at the beginning. Yeah. And then in later books, um being um having a greater depth of character. But he was because he himself says I was a different person back yeah. then and, and I think he is. So I'm not necessarily sure. It's cheating, although I don't know why I'm standing up in your, your sloppy styles here. <laughs> well, look, I kind of, I kind of knew when when I was when I was writing him that in that book he's it's a martial society and he he's overweight, he's short sighted in a society that, that prizes power bows. Bows is one of the things you do and he can't do it. And he's not a great fighter, mm. uh, and. It was always in, and, and he, his mother's terrible, um, but it, it was always in my head that if he wasn't the prince, he would be the person being bullied the way Gurn is. Okay. And he knows that, because he's clever enough to know that. Mm. 
and he's frightened and and all I mean I think that for everybody I think all most deeply unpleasant behaviour comes from fear mm. a lot of the time mm. and, I, and I like but I thought I was cheeked <laughs> <laughs> I really I really wish I, I had like that much of a thought process behind it <laughs> if I was doing it now I would do um, yeah I think for me I was I wanted to be able to sort of show the different layers of the world and I wanted to have more perspectives to be able to explore like you know what's going on in the world in terms of like the, the royal class and like the middle class people and with people kind of on the ground in the world as well and stuff so it was very much like a, a way like having different points of view is like very much a way to do that but it just kind of creates so many complications that if I was doing it again I'd probably try and stick to one point of view um, for the story but um, yeah I don't know all do kind you, of plays into do it do you well. find when you're doing multiple point of view that there are you'd be writing one and thinking oh I wish I was wish I was writing the other sometimes actually yeah because yeah. I, I know when I'm reading like Game of Thrones the first three before I got annoyed with it. <laughs> 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 that I, I'll be like it'll change characters and I'll just be thinking yeah. No, I no, I don't care about this person. I want that one, that person. Yeah. When I read the third one, I went, I, I did it with post-it notes so, you, so I could go through and just read right. like ah. mini novels. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's rubbish. It's, it's, it's definitely not how George designed it. Well, I think that talk about George R. R. Martin. He does sort of lots of different places, and he's, mm. they're scattered around the kind of the, the whole of. Uh, Westeros and beyond mm. I think Mike is yours like you say it's very much class as much as anything mm. else I mean you've got the Brotherhood and then you've kind of got the Royal Dynasties and just people on the ground and things like that and it is they are spread around geographically but they all kind of as characters naturally do kind of come towards the same point towards yeah. the end but it's as much ge- geography as um, you say class that, that separates mm. them mm. Um, but obviously since we moved on to the idea of geography I wanted to talk about setting because um, Girton is kind of confined to one area while Nathan and the others do range all over the place so did you use maps to help create imaginary worlds and keep track of them um, whether that was a continent or in uh, RJ's case a castle there and back again <laughs> do you know my story about Maps. I do, and that might partly be why I've put it in. Uh, um, are you anti-maps or for maps? No. <laughs> you have a wonderful I, Tom Parker to illustrate. I did. Stuff, I'm, I'm map ambivalent. Yeah. But because they, they do some special editions of my books that are hardbacks, and for the first one, Tom Tom had drawn a lovely picture, and I said okay. to Tom, "Let's do a map for the second because I know he loves doing maps." And um, and he said, "Right, you have to draw the world out." And I was just <laughs> like, "Well, can't I just give you some place names and you make it up?" And he was going, not even I'm that slack. So I had my um, copy edits at the time. So as I was going through my copy edits, I was noting down which way they go Uh and where they go. And I found out that I'd actually written a book where they moved backwards and forwards on a tiny little road (laughs) constantly throughout the book and never went anywhere. If if you could see my finger, I'm just moving it backwards and forwards. (laughs) And it wasn't until that. You get these descriptions of these long journeys that they actually take to get to places, but none of that happened as I'd written it. So thankfully, Tom forced me not to be slack and and the map was very useful. And the thing I'm writing now, which I can't talk about, but I'm going to, is... It's the exact opposite of the Assassin books, which was tiny ge- geographically. Mm. The thing I'm writing now is massive geographically. It's basically half a globe. Oh. Um, Tom, Tom has um, done me like a, a, a draft of a map for that I can oh, use yeah. um, and, and have mostly ignored. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not do a map of the inside of the castle? Because my current work in progress is all centred around the castle and I had to draw it out and figure mm. out 
you know, when she was in her sleeping quarters, where did she go to get to the main hall? Mainly because otherwise she ended up taking several different routes. And in the end, I just went, it's Magic Castle, there's no different routes. But generally, they do follow the same path. And I ha- but I had to draw it out because I couldn't keep it all in my head with it being no, an imaginary place. No, but you all, didn't do that? It's all in my head. Oh, okay. And, and, and even harder was um, the castle because they, they go, so pretentious. They're written as a set of scales. Because um, this whole idea of balance was through. In the, the first book and the third book, he used the same format. Mm. Um, in, in that they have flashbacks that tell the story of another character, um, and they're set in one castle. But um, the third book is a much darker version, and that castle is much harder to keep track of in my head. And it, yeah, even Girton can't keep track of it, can he? No, no. <laughs> no, he can't, which was very useful. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what about you? Did you like have a map started, of all the places? Yeah, I had the map. I, I started with them. Well, I didn't start with the map, but yeah, probably like very early on, like literally within like three or four chapters, I started like drawing out a map and stuff. Just Are you for the an sake of being. Um, I can draw a bit. I wouldn't go as far as saying I'm an artist quite, but yeah, I can draw a little bit. But I just like, so I had a, I had a map for um, the main palace in like the main city in, in the in, in the land and everything and I had a map for the actual land itself um, just for the sake of being consistent did um, you have little pins in it and you move people around just to make sure they didn't like cross over each other or <laughs> you just stuck it on the wall and glanced I had, I had it on the wall with like post-its as well and stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> you cheat wildly a little bit yeah yeah because yeah, I'm like I'd, well, I, initially I'd like I had it like because I had measurements for like how long it should take to get to mm. certain places but yeah there are a few times where I'm just like just gonna have to cheat. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, there's a thing called the festival, which is a, a, a caravan mm. that moves around the world, and I and I worked out how long it would take me to do that, and it took me ages and ages and ages, and I never used it. Mm. But, um, <laughs> but in my current one, it ships, uh, and I have literally given up. <laughs> in, it, it would in the first version it was like oh they, they sailed for two weeks in a southeasterly direction and in my edits I've just I've just moved it kind of says they, they, they went for an amount of time <laughs> <laughs> that's it okay so um, I know that obviously RJ has covered this question a little bit um, but how much you know when you start out because obviously they say um, J.K. Rowling knew the end of Harry Potter book seven even before she'd started book one so RJ you've written a trilogy did you know where Gerton was going to end up with a book at the end of sorry when you were at the beginning of book one did you know where he was going to end up at the end of book three and Micah do you have any idea where your characters are going or are you on as much of a journey as them I'm on the journey oh, yeah. so <laughs> I you haven't no had gone Nathan has to be at this point <laughs> in book two and this no, point in book three no just kind no. of see where they go it's just seeing where they go so it's just sort of like um, events so I have I have like scenes sometimes in my head and stuff that I want to sort of like join the story to um, but in terms of like endings and like where the character's going and how things are going to turn out, no idea. Yeah. No. We were talking about this yeah. over, over, over dinner because we went, we went for dinner because we're, we're authors. RJ's far more professional about this. Than yeah, I'm, no, it sounds like I'm, it's not. It's just it's a lie. RJ's um, far more professional at dinner. You're saying? Yeah, very. Sounds <laughs> like RJ. I had a bib and everything. Um, <laughs> um, well, when when my agent put it into orbit, you have to do an outline for three books right so I had to like write the back of a book for two more books so so I kind of I think the third one literally said some stuff happens <laughs> um, but I knew oh, right. the entire first book jumped into my head fully formed so I could sit and write that and that was fun and then 
I knew what I wanted to do with the the books were about the relationship between Girton and his master Merrill, who was a mother figure, and I knew their relationship and I knew where it would end up, and I knew what was going to happen at the end with them. That that was always very clear, and there are lots of if you go back and read it, there's lots of stuff that you'll read the first book and think, oh, mm. oh, I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> but for the plot of each book, I literally had no idea. I, I didn't, and I had a rough idea for the second one. I kind of knew some bits. I knew, I knew I wanted they ride around on big things with antlers. I knew I wanted a cavalry charge, yeah, because that that just seemed to be the coolest thing I could possibly <laughs> think of. Um, and I knew, I knew who'd done it, okay, because you have to know who'd done it in a mystery to to work that out as you go through. But the third book, I, I literally, I know, I, I, I knew that payoff, right. I, I had no other ideas. That's so cool. I Terrifying. I literally had I had a starting event, um, like very dramatic event that happens at the beginning of the story. It is dramatic. A little bit dramatic. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of. I think it's important to say that a lot of fantasy works on being familiar and giving you what what you know. I always think fantasy is like a bit of a hug sometimes. <laughs> some of it, uh, and because it's one of the few books and that something happens in it, and I went. No! No! Fuck off! No! And I very rarely swear. Charlotte will know that. I probably just, I did not see it coming and didn't expect it. I know, if it's the bit I'm thinking of, it's like, but, but, but. Yeah, totally didn't see it coming. And that, yeah. That's why, so that we don't spoil it for our audience, um, we are not going to mention it, despite RJ doing stabby motion. I think we can guess there's some stabbing in the yeah. book of Assassin's Creed. Uh, you, 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 should, you should read Mickey Younger. You should have lost oh, thank you. Should, you should. Are you don't need to answer the question now, RJ answered it for you. Thank you. Yeah. I like the way that works. <laughs> <laughs> With the question, should you read Lost Gods? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but, Mickey, uh, you obviously um, talked about uh, where, where you know, oh, I'm trying again. Mike, do you just want to add to RJ's um, wonderful critique of your oh. book and say about whether or not you have any vague ideas where they're going, the characters and their overall arcs and things? I, I know I know where they're starting. And that's with both books so far as well, actually. I know I know the kickoff point, but in terms of like where it's gonna end up and how it's gonna be resolved, yeah, I have no idea. I just sort of like was writing from chapter chap from chapter to chapter and just trying to be inside the character's head as much as possible and try to be present with the character as much as possible and trying to figure out what's what feels emotive or what felt like the natural outcome in terms of what's happening as it emerges in the story. Mm. Um, I didn't have the plan ahead of time and I don't have the the full plan over across the the three books as well. I have little, I have images and I have certain situations that I that seem really exciting to me that I'd like to sort of get towards. Mm. Um, but no, I don't know the, I don't know, I don't know where it ends. Um, I just know where the characters start. Excellent. Okay. Well, one last question before I throw it open to the audience. Um, out of all the characters you've written, do you have a personal favourite? Because I was thinking about this when I was reading RJ's book and someone was asking me about the trilogy and I went, well, if I went back and read it again, I'm not really sure I'd be reading it for Girton. I think I'd probably be reading it for Ador. That was that was my assumption. That I'd like to go back and reread it to for that. And I haven't quite decided on Mike's yet, which one I, I like. They're all a bit mean. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, RJ, do you have a particular character that you just have a little soft spot for? Yeah, I, I like Ador because he, he has a... Uh, he has a very interesting journey in the books. 
Um, I but, wish our listeners could see RJ's yeah, face and yeah, the conversation. <laughs> um, I'm so curious. I've only read the first book, so I'm yeah. really just about to, you said eight, or I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't have thought it either. And when I got no. to book two, I was I like, didn't Ooh. think it until <laughs> chapter three when I was writing it. Um, <laughs> but um, that, that was a complete surprise. It, there's, a, there's a moment oh. in, in chapter three where, where I just thought, oh, there's, there's much more to this character than I thought. Oh. And I went on. But um, it. it it's Merrilla, I think, for me, his, mm. his master. She's kind of, in my head, she is this... Because I started writing it when, when my little boy was maybe three, um, and she is this avatar of that fierce and terrifying parental love, but she is a very good parent in as much as you can be when you're bringing your, <laughs> your surrogate child up to murder people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in that she is saying to him, right go out and make your mistakes but I will be here mm. no matter what I will be here you do not need to worry about that and that, that is that really kind of touches something inside me as a parent mm. you know, the same way when in the railway children when Jenny goes daddy my daddy kind of breaks me um, Meryl does the same thing that, that kind of thing yeah you, you, you love him utterly and unconditionally mm. and, and, and I really I really like that I might one day revisit her Earlier on in life, no, maybe. That not, I, not, would, not I would read that. Yeah, not a prequel. I don't think it would tie into those books. We, well, she kind of has her own prequel story within it, doesn't she? Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. It would be after that and before these books. I know I want to do, but it's for the orbit will pay me. <laughs> 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 it's easy to talk about RJs and which one I like because I kind of see them all to completion. Whereas, of course, with Mike, yeah. they're still yeah. on their journey. And I might say, well, this is my favourite one today because I, I must admit, I do quite like Nathan the protagonist because he's always questioning things and wondering right. about stuff. Um, but at the same time, it's like, well, I don't know where he's going to end up, <laughs> where these questions yeah. are leading. But what about you when you're writing? Is there uh, one you really like? Maybe Caleb. Well, Caleb or Ariana, probably. Caleb's quite grumpy and snarky and sarcastic and dry. Cool. And, yeah, I'm not sure what that says about me that he's my favourite character actually. But um, yeah, he's, he's not grumpy at all. I don't, well, I don't yeah. think I am. But yeah, yeah. maybe it's just the contrast I really like. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But um, no, he, he was he was a lot of fun to write, mm. and he was a lot. He was very easy to write as well. Actually, he has all the best um, lines. <laughs> Which one of your characters is the nearest to you? Oh gosh. Um, Clearly not the grumpy one. I don't know. Maybe maybe a little bit of all of them. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think. Well, that's what they say, yeah. isn't it? That a good author puts a little bit of everything. Yeah. In it. And I mean, you you've got a little bit of Morella and you. Well, no, a little bit of you is in Morella and a little yeah. bit of you is in Gurton and everything. So it, you know. Having... My mum, when she read Age of Assassins, just just picked up the book and said, "That is you, Gurton. Huh. It's you." So the sense of humour is that is you. It's, huh. it's that. And I was like, "No, I do not kill people." <laughs> 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 when you when you write characters, do you ever think? Do you ever sorry? Do you ever think of people who you actually know in terms of like trying to characterise them, or are you just sort of creating the character from scratch? Not consciously, but I'm pretty sure I do. I like, I like people read a lot. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> For my new thing that I'm that I'm not talking about, I have, and you're doing that very successfully. Yeah, I must very say. very successfully. Yeah, the, the, it's totally uh-huh. secret. No one knows anything about it. Um, I have specifically taken some people I know and put them in the book. <laughs> um, just, just for my own amusement. Will you um, ever tell them? Um, Will they two know of them, <laughs> Two of them know. Th- two, two, two don't know. <laughs> One of them might kill me when she... <laughs> uh, but I guess who that is. Um, 
I mean, listeners can't, but I've not. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah me, 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 me yeah. just clicked. All right. <laughs> yeah. But um, it, it's, they're not personality-wise like them. Right. But I've stolen names and a little bit of the way that people look <laughs> for, for stuff. Because I'm running out of ideas. What about you, Micah? Same question back at you. Oh, gosh. Um, I don't, not consciously, oh. not consciously, um... Well, actually, no. Was maybe one character, but it was only like after I'd finished it where I thought, "Oh no, that's actually my mum." Uh, <laughs> Does she know? Um, I don't think she will because it's not a female character either. Oh, but, right. um, yeah, there was a lot of yeah, a lot that was very similar. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, not consciously though. I kind of get this feeling now that in the next book of RJ, there's going to be a, a Micah character, and in there's going to be an RJ character. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that'll be so cool. I'm stealing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's getting I've, done. I've got That's a question for, for Charlotte and Mike. Right. I love this question, my favourite question. If you could get a book, remove the covers, and they would be recovered with your name as the author, and then oh, it would be completely blanked out of time that the other author existed, it would always be known that you wrote this book, <laughs> and it would happen in a nice way. I'm not sure how that works, but it would. What book would you would you choose? Obviously, I would choose Watership Down. <laughs> oh, that's. I was wondering yeah. how you going. You know, when you yes. said to Railway Children before, I thought yeah. you were actually going to go into yeah, Watership Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I was, I was, I was waiting. Delayed gratification. <laughs> gratification. So I think oh. what you were asking is: Is there a book out there that you wish you'd written that somebody else has already written that you prepared to have the author die for? Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> If I could sneakily take somebody's name off the title and put mine up there, I'd have to have a choice between uh, Naomi Novik's Uprooted or possibly John Connolly's The Book of Lost Things. But I know John and he's really lovely and he sent me his newest book, so I kind of feel if the categories I have to kill them. (gasps) You know John Connolly? Yes. Well, if you listen to my interview on Ginger Nuts of Horror with the very lovely John Connolly, then yes. Um, Next time you see him, tell him how much I I have loved his um, Charlie Parker books. (laughs) Absolutely loved them. And and, um, one of the creatures that's at um, Cutting Horror still freaks me out of kind of big blobby fella I can't look at the uh, ventilation on my car without thinking of spiders coming out of it. oh gosh <laughs> yeah, 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 not oh yeah Mike, right, yeah. <laughs> should we stop this John Connolly oh gosh um, I'm thinking probably something by Cormac McCarthy oh and yeah maybe Blood Meridian yeah, by Cormac McCarthy. It's a jolly book, isn't it? It's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I've got a little bit of a dark theme yeah, today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No. yeah. It's just, uh, everything about it is a lot. <laughs> Yours would be Watership Down, wouldn't it? Yes, Watership Down. Is there anything about Watership Down that you would change at all? No. No? no. Nothing? Nothing. There's a temptation to say, oh, I'd put in more female characters, but, but they're rabbits. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's kind of, uh, you can't really apply our morality to rabbits. It doesn't work to rabbits. Mm. <laughs> so, and and it's, 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 I read a thing earlier where he was saying it's just a book about rabbits, which he told everybody, which just shows you how little authors know about their books. <laughs> <laughs> and on that wonderful note, I shall open it up to audience questions if anybody has anything they would like to ask RJ or Micah. Um, hello. Hello. <laughs> okay. And I would like to ask, I saw a review that was talking about your castle. Mm. and how somebody couldn't get their head around it because they were thinking of traditional European castles. I've kind of got this Gordon Ghastly feel in my head. Is that closer 
Yeah, it, it's kind of. I, I, I think there's a really weird thing that people read the books and and it's obviously a failing of me as an author that I've not put enough into it. That they cause there was a review where somebody said, "Oh, oh, it's just people stabbing each other through plate armor." <laughs> and, and, and and there is no plate armor in the books. Oh. It's um someone another author came up to me and went. They're samurai, aren't they? And, and they are. All the armor's based on samurai after and the way, the way they look. And, and yeah, it's a kind of gormongasty, massive, mouldering castle in the first book. And, it's, and when you get to the castle in the third book, it, it's like that times 100. It, it's this... And, and I wanted this, this feel of its architecture from a lost time, that they've moved into these places uh, and they, they don't have the technology to keep up to them, but they're, they're massive and a bit weird. Hmm. Which is yeah. See now I'm getting dragon riders of Perth. <laughs> oh. Where they you know, there was a, a whole civilization generations before who had amazing technology that they don't have anymore they don't Yeah, I, d- I don't yeah. I don't think there's technology in, in the world, but but I think there's kind of just a... Because it, it's a the for people listening that don't know, the way magic works in this world is if, if I cast a spell in this room it was a big spell. They're not even spells. They're not not really like that. It would kill everybody in this room because I would use their life to do it, and then nothing would ever grow underneath this place ever again. And there have been a number of events where where people have come as magicians and tried to take over this world and have just wrecked the place. It's a society under huge ecological pressure, um, and they just don't have the time. Like they call a sword a stab sword because they don't have the time to be imaginative and think of a nice name for it. Okay. it and that that's that's kind of like they've had these amazing buildings, but they they, they just don't have the stuff anymore. It's, it's gone. They've, they've wrecked their own world. It's almost like another metaphor. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even realise, but yeah. <laughs> oh, one more question. Do any of the characters in the book find just really repulsive? I'm just going to say that out loud because I'm not sure my microphone will pick you up. Um, so they're asking if there are any characters you find repulsive in your books compared to when I asked you earlier if there are any floppy ones you really <laughs> like. <laughs> there any that really, really upset you? Not in Lost Gods, but there is one in Pale Kings which he both fascinates, repulses, but also I really like him as a character at the same time. Um, so I have a bit of a confusing relationship with him. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I feel I feel like you always kind of have to like your characters to a certain mm. degree to actually write them accurately. There's always something, at least for me as an author, where you feel like you're on their side a little bit, even if you're writing about a villain. Um, but yeah, he's probably the one who runs me the closest anyway. Yeah. Maybe it's a case of not so much liking them as you have to respect them for who they are. Yeah, yeah. He makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, like I can imagine how I would be him, um, but he also repulses me. <laughs> Saying you're repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, I don't really write books with a bad guy. Um, what's about the Boar Lord? Yeah, yeah, but he was quite nasty. He, he is quite nasty, but but then I think in in book three, what you find out about him kind of negates that, and. And, and when when people are doing things, I understand why they're doing these mm. things, and, and, I, and I have a, an amount of the the only one because I, I, I don't believe in evil. I, I think society 
creates bad things. Um, the only one that that is a person that makes my skin crawl a bit is there's the major domo of the castle in the third book who's called Gamelon, mm. who has been raised within a society that that is that has no rules and has become completely decadent. Mm. And, and it was based on sort of, I think, the, the Maiji, Maiji, I don't know how to say it, M-E-I-J-I, um, Chinese, Chinese or Japan. I wrote these books a long time ago. <laughs> so well over two years since I've been doing it. Um, and their, their court was just, like, horrific. Oh. And, and that's the sort of thing I've created in the third book, this court where, where they were utterly depraved. But to him, that's normal. That, mm. that yeah. is how people act, and he can't. And he, he kind of makes my skin crawl a bit. He was based on me. <laughs> <laughs> just like me. Excellent. Well, I've just seen that somebody has brought us some pastries, so I think it is definitely time to call an end to that. Um, thank you very much to RJ with the fabulous head hair and thank to Micah <laughs> with the fabulous chin hair. <laughs> and thank you very much to the audience thank for you. coming. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. <laughs>